Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hetline, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person with hope that uh, post-COVID-19, Minnesota will be more resilient, more caring, more alive, a better Minnesota. Uh, do not want to co- gloss over our current reality. Um, more than 90,000, uh, 93,000 Americans have already died from COVID-19. Nearly 40 million Americans face unemployment. And in the food systems, uh, millions of hogs, chickens, and turkeys are being killed at the same time of growing food insecurity. Uh, encourage people to listen to the show we did a few weeks ago with Wendy Pilot. Um, the current situation for Minnesota corn and soybean farmers, so there's a lot of grim feelings out there. Corn in northern Iowa and southern Minnesota is trading at $2.70 a bushel, give or take a dime. To get prices that low, you need to go back about 14 years. And uh, some are even thinking the prices may be lower. So farmers are facing some really strong headwinds, especially after years and years of facing strong headwinds. Um, so they've been getting beaten up year and year and after this. And at the same time that farmers are facing this, uh, the Detroit Press reports that grocery store bills shot up in April, showing the biggest monthly increase in nearly 50 years. Um, According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, monthly consumer price index on food has been rising 4.1%. So all these contradictions. Um, People less able to afford food when farmers are dumping milk, plowing up fields, and killing animals, not for food, but to, quote-unquote, depopulate. So where's the hope? We are the hope. More and more of us are planting gardens. In fact, uh, one 24-year-old homeowner in Falcon Heights, he digs up his front's yards to make a large garden. Um, But then he gets a notice from the city of Falcon Heights that front yard gardens are illegal. Gardens offer so many benefits. Uh, Good for pollinators, the best food you can get. Uh, Great for our mental health. Uh, Nothing calms, centers, and grounds me as much as gardening does. So the city council in Falcon Heights passed an interim ordinance last week. So this happened just last week. They passed an ordinance banning front yard gardens. Really? With all that's going on right now, they found the time and the energy to ban gardens in the front yard. (laughs) And so why is a person being banned from gardening in his own yard? And the quote is to ensure that neighbors' rights are considered. So your neighbor has the right to add poisons that cause cancer, the Roundup court cases. We know that it causes cancer. They have the right, these these poisons enter our waterways. They hurt pollinators and birds and other wildlife. They cause a lot of problems for people with chemical sensitivities, all in the name of sterile monoculture. So where is the hope? Well, we are the hope. (laughs) And thousands of people have signed petitions. I'm sure you're hearing this new story. And, you know, people are stopping by his yard and handing him money. And and if he does get charged with a penny misdemeanor, maybe we'll all rally and pay his fine for him. Um, But this hope really um, is, it goes, runs much, much more deeper. And the great American lawn, um, I think, is an outgrowth of colonization. Um, and a lot of people are talking about this now. How do we decolonize our minds? And um, I think the lawn represents egocentric living and how do we move from egocentric to ecocentric. And if people would like to learn more about this, there's this great site. It's called presencing.org. That's spelled P R E S E N S. Um, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-I-N-G dot org. Um, And there's so much wonderful information on that site about how we... 
how we are in a time of absencing and how do we come more alive. And I think that's the big hope of COVID-19 time is that we are realizing that it's the relationships. It's not, we're not things, we're not transactions, we're people, um, how to have a humanity rising. Um, and there's so many hopes, stories of hopes out there. And uh, later in the program, we're going to be joined by Katie Stearns with Ubitcha Box. And uh, Katie and a group of independent small food producers are feeding the front lines. It's an effort to get quality local treats to frontline workers. So we look forward to talking to Katie in, um, at the end of the show. The third segment. Um, the other place that I find hope is in the potential of local entrepreneurs. Um, our local people, we create the future. We decide the future we want to live in. And uh, I, people may want to listen to the show we did with Zach Robinson a few weeks ago. And Zach Robinson, was um, he works, he's the executive director of Spark Y. And he talked about when he graduated college, it was a 2008 crisis and it was a hard time. But that's also when Spark Y was formed. And Spark Y is doing so much wonderful work in the urban food movement and encourage people to listen to that show. Um, and there's also this little side note from history. Um, the cereal brand Post cereals, and you may have known that uh, there was a rivalry between Kellogg's and Post. Um, but I don't know how many people know that it was because um, Post, um, he was a patient in a sanatorium. <laughs> and Kellogg um, was also, he was a, a doctor at that sanatorium, and they had an event uh, food to feed people. And so they came up with these cereal ideas. And so these two people, Kellogg and Post, came up with a business. So I find a lot of hope in how people can create businesses. Um, and how can people create food businesses in Minnesota now? And that's the topic of today's show. And joining us to talk about this is uh, Jason Robinson. And Jason is the product de- Project Development Director for the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about AURI. Absolutely. And I'm glad you already mentioned the full name of the acronym because it's a mouthful. <laughs> and uh, I don't really want to say it again. Um, but... AURI is a 30-year-old, nonprofit, largely state-funded, mission-based organization that's focused on fostering long-term economic benefit for Minnesota through value-added agriculture. Uh, we were created uh, about 30 years ago uh, in response to farmers' uh, revenue crisis during the 80s. And our role is really where I like to say that we are, um, that our work doesn't really start until the crops have already been harvested and are in the bin, or the animal has already been slaughtered or milked, because that's really the definition of value-added agriculture. Uh, we are not um, there uh, on the front lines helping the farmer figure out how to increase their yield of corn or soybeans. We're there to help them transform that material into products of higher value to drive more revenue back to the farmer. So you can really think of us as a technical consultancy of, of engineers and scientists to help transform those agricultural products into items of higher value than just their, their uh, inherent food value to push more revenue back to the farmer. Right, and that's so vital right now, especially with the headwinds that the farmers are facing. And it, it makes good economic sense for us to try to figure out um, to uh, have um, thriving local businesses. I, I agree. And what's really interesting about this is that uh, in 1989, the uh, Minnesota state government decided to truly put some financial support behind that and created AURI 
to help drive uh, not just revenue back to the farmers, but to help small businesses thrive in the environment. And we've seen that continue over the past 30 years with the uh, ongoing support from not just the state government, but also from the various uh, commodity organizations and trade organizations that have thrown their support behind the good work that AURI does, whether that's in helping food businesses thrive or whether that's in identifying new opportunities in the realm of bio-based products, which would be focused on uh, replacing petroleum-based items with, with renewable sources um, in the area of bio-based fuels or renewable energy. Um, AURI has done a lot of work in the ethanol industry and, and kind of helping bring that up in the 90s to where it is today. I believe it's delivering close to $6 billion in revenue to the state. And then um, the other area that's outside of food is what we call co-products which is really an area that is focused on transforming agricultural processing waste streams into products of higher value so that you can use the entire animal or the entire crop and, and not a bit of it goes to waste. Yeah, so there's some uh, some some examples of some co-products uh, like an um, uh, a fish mill feed um, to support um, ag- aquaculture. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of, the, one of the biggest ones that we actually work with, you, you'd mentioned uh, aquaculture, but just more generally, being able to take the, the byproducts from these agricultural processing streams and transform them into animal feed. We like to talk about the, the co-product streams and the co-products work that we do as servicing food, fuel, or fertilizer. And when I say food, I really mean animal food because uh, sometimes if it's not acceptable to go back into the human food stream, oftentimes there's retained nutritional value that goes directly into animal feed, whether that's aquaculture, whether that's using um, what we call dried distiller's grains that comes from the ethanol process, so it's a byproduct of, of uh, the ethanol-making process that then gets transformed into animal feed as well. Well, that's awesome because you know trying to reduce waste and and how we how we find how we innovate and I know one of the little things too I, I loved hearing a little bit about is char energy energy I've heard about char as uh, something that can be very um, uh, instrumental in improving soil quality. Yeah, we, the the product is actually known as, as biochar, and it's a charcoal like residue that turns uh, agricultural fibers into a material that can be used for absor- absorbing liquids, uh, improving water quality and soil characteristics, and also for creating energy. And, and again, it's really about being able to transform um, something like an agricultural fiber. So think about what's left in the field after all the sweet corn is harvested. You've got all this biomass and all this fiber that can then be transformed into something that creates new value for the farmer uh, rather than simply tilling it back into the field, though there is value there too, um, but to actually transform that into something that provides a new source of revenue. How awesome. Now, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how people can start their own businesses, and I'm even going to throw out some ideas that maybe Food Freedom Radio can do, um, and we're just going to talk about how do we start businesses. Um, with us is Jason Robinson. He's with the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute, or ARI. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Satisfy. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us by phone is Jason Robinson. He's with the AURI. And Jason, before we get into these details, tell us a little bit about your personal background. Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, So I am a chemical engineer by training, which sounds a little unusual when you think about, well, what's this guy talking about in the food industry? Uh, What I find really interesting is um, chemical engineering as a degree program is really about using the principles of chemistry, physics, math, biology, and economics to use, produce, design, or transform energy and materials into something else. So when I graduated from school, my intent was I was going to work for a big company like Exxon in the oil industry or Dow Chemical. And as it turned out, I had two summer internships with a Fortune 500 food company here in the Twin Cities, headquartered in the Twin Cities, General Mills. And what I found out is how all of these, these principles that I learned in engineering school could be applied to making food products. And ultimately, that what I was working with was much less likely to kill me uh, because it was just it's something you can eat. Uh, and as my time continued on at General Mills, whether I was in uh, producing new products, uh, producing new flavors of bugles, or working on, on scaling up new products for Pillsbury. Okay, i, I got to uh, stop you right there. What, what flavor of bugles did you work on? <laughs> oh, well, interestingly, I worked on uh, kind of all of them, but the one that I actually created was a salsa-flavored bugles. Ooh. Um, and I also spent some time working on a product that's no longer around called baked bugles, which was right at the height of the ah. uh, low-fat craze, because they were not fried, they were baked. Yes, and uh, th- so that- that's interesting. I-, I didn't want to stop you, but uh, Bugles is actually, I had a fun pot for Bugles. <laughs> so uh, so you were working at General Mills? Yes, I spent, uh, spent about 19 years there uh, working on a number of different brands with new products, trying to find ways to reduce costs, um, scaling up new processes, or or just bringing new products to market. And uh, there is where I really built the base of my uh, food industry knowledge. Um, I worked in packaging. I worked in uh, product development. I worked in process development. And uh, the favorite brand that I worked on, Laura, I worked on Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And uh, (laughs) there's not much more fun than you can have than spending a day making, uh, making ice cream. Okay, so but now the focus is, I mean, and, and I, I really want to get out of silos and good guys, bad guys. I'm really trying to move towards unity. But there is something about um, entrepreneurs, individuals creating their own companies that just really stirs my passion. Sure. Sure. Uh, interestingly, one of the last roles that I had when I was at General Mills um, was focused on building new brands and new products with an entrepreneurial mindset under a big corporate umbrella. What that did for me is it really helped me see how I could take all of this knowledge I've gathered from working in the big food industry and transform that into supporting small food businesses and growing them from the ground up. And that led me to where I am today, working with AURI and helping to transform what we think of as Minnesota's rich agricultural products into sustainable food businesses through science to support these, uh, these small food entrepreneurs by providing them affordable access to both expertise and to some infrastructure that they may need, whether that's lab space, 
or development space in a um, commercial kitchen to create their their next product. So um, give us some examples. Share some positive stories of local foods. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of our one of our favorite examples is a company in Piers, Minnesota, called uh, Smoothie's Sunflower Oil. Uh, Tom Smoothie was a, historically was a um, I believe he was uh, growing corn and soybeans, and when he started to to see the downturn in the economy, I think this was you had mentioned it earlier, but when he started to see the downturn in the economy around 2007 2008, he was looking for something new, and he happened upon sunflowers. What AURI helped him do was to transform that crop that he started growing into a viable business, uh, pressing, uh, cold pressing um, the sunflower seeds into a high-quality oil, food oil, that could be used for coating popcorn, for frying, for any number of different opportunities. And then as that business grew, he continued to find new ways and opportunities to grow his business. And one day he comes to AURI with an idea to use his sunflower oil all in the, all in the context of um, increased utilization of this agricultural product, but to use his sunflower oil and um, coat it on a microwave popcorn mm. because that sunflower oil gave the impression it tasted like butter. And uh, so today... Tom has created a brand of, of Smoothie's microwave popcorn in a patent-pending uh, bag that uses the liquid sunflower oil uh, coated in over top of the uh, popcorn, and you can get this at any number of stores. As a matter of fact, at my local movie theater, I noticed that um, they were highlighting Smoothie's sunflower oil as their form of, of uh, um, flavor enhancement to the popcorn that they were serving. And, and what does this mean to have this more vibrant, that he can grow sunflowers here in Minnesota, then do a practical company? Um, there's a lot of mutual benefits to that. Absolutely there is. I mean, from our mission point of view, from AURI's mission point of view, uh, we're all about finding ways to drive value for Minnesota's rich agricultural resources. So if there's a way that we can support small businesses enhance their offering by finding local sourcing opportunities, that ultimately drives utilization and ultimately revenue back to the farmers. Now, that's just the one aspect of driving utilization. There's also the community that local food uh, is able to provide. Right. Um, food in general is, is a product that, that has such an intimacy with the consumer. And so being able to, uh, to facilitate um, that effective intimacy between the, uh, the purveyor of the food product and the end consumer in a fashion that's mutually beneficial is very rewarding and has uh, benefit both back to the local community as well as to the, uh, the farmer himself. Yeah, and it's and especially in this time, we are looking for hope. I mean, imagine a, a, a thousand different um, people doing things like he did. I mean, maybe he's not um, um, making microwave popcorn with the soybean with the sunflowers you grow. But uh, uh, what other ideas do people have out there? What other innovation is happening right now? Oh, absolutely. Um, what's What's really interesting about just sort of a general statement 
about the uh, the consumer dynamic at large is that, that, that drives much of what we're seeing in the industry today is that uh, in 2019, the Pew Research Center highlighted that millennials were surpassing boomers as the largest living generation in the country. While possessing the most access to information in human history, and with that comes a strong personal conviction based on social and environmental awareness. And I say this because with millennials surpassing boomers as the largest living generation, they also surpass boomers as those with the dominant purchasing power position in the food industry. And what that means is that there is that the millennial generation's ideals and strong personal convictions resonate with the food companies that are purchasing or are, are making um, development decisions based on their consumer base. And so one of those key things that we see is we see this focus back towards local foods and the impact that it has on the community, the impact that it has from a um, sustainability point of view. And we see that kind of across the board. Well, and, and so I'm just going to jump in here. I mean, with so much going on right now, the hogs being killed, the farmers not making money for the grain, yet food prices going up. I mean, let's just saw it out. And, and yet, I mean, uh, we talk about Food Freedom Radio talks about how do we have a kind, sane world. The structure of our food system right now is just not working. And not to blame people because we're all kind of doing whatever we are. So how do we look at creating structures that do work, structures that work for pollinators, structures that work for water quality, structures that work for soil quality, and this idea of having an ecosystem of of, of caring companies, you know, creating, you know, really working on feeding the world, It's it, it, is this a point of hope? Well, I, I would agree with you. And I think what, you've, what you'll see as you look a little bit deeper is that many of the largest food companies have made substantial commitments to um, improve the world in which we live. Uh, I think about my former employer, General Mills, uh, for as long as I can recall while I was employed there, um, they released what they'd call a global, a global responsibility report, which highlighted the impacts that they were looking to make across water stewardship, across soil health. But from a um, newsworthiness point of view, those kind of things tend not to be necessarily highlighted as much as, say, you know, what you're seeing today with the, um, with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I know. What, go ahead. I'm oh, I'm sorry. sorry. No, 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 no. I know General Mills made a commitment to doing regenerative um, agriculture, so many acres, and, and that's awesome. But I also think, especially at this time, if someone's looking at being unemployed, and, and you talked about young people and boomers, and I know I was reading, oh, it's going to be so hard for these new graduates, and oh, it's just so mm-hmm. terrible. And then I remember the words of Zach Robinson and the spirit of Zach Robinson when he starts back, why? He's like, we can make it better. And so, I mean, I, but let's, let's, I want to get into some details. How could a person start a business? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so that's, it's interesting to be living in a, in a state like Minnesota, which has made a big commitment to supporting businesses. Uh, one of those commitments that the state of Minnesota has made is through the Minnesota Department of Ag. Um, this would have been about two and a half, three years ago. Uh, actually, when I first came out of General Mills into AURI, um, we worked with a partnership of different support organizations to this, what we call the Small Food Business Ecosystem 
to build a roadmap that we cleverly have called the Starting a Food Business Roadmap. Um, this is, it's really a way to give interested food makers a place to start with, let's say, topics to explore. And, and so this map really helps them to see where do I need to go and what do I need to know along the way. The map itself is presented somewhat sequentially, but as a, as a curvy road, as we're talking about a, a road map. But the reality, and this is where it can be very confusing for um, first-time food makers, is, is that all the different topics covered in that tool could be lumped together in the middle as opposed to handled sequentially as many of the topic areas, whether it's food safety, whether it's licensing, whether it's where am I going to produce this, they're all somewhat interdependent. So, yeah, it's interdependent, it's complex, and it can be hard. And so how do we make it easy for each other? And uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. And when we come back, I want to throw an idea out there and see if it's something that I or Food Freedom Radio or perhaps you would want to do. (laughs) You know, how do we just start different businesses and make it easier for other people to start their own business? Uh, You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nurture the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us by phone is Jason Robinson. He's with AURI, the uh, Agricultural Utilization and Research Institute, and we're talking about how to start a food business. And this little image from a story of, of a novel I, I read a long time ago sticks with me, and it, the book was called Sacred Hunger, and it was about very dark times, and a woman whose husband is no good, and she has to feed her children. She doesn't know how she could feed her children. She knew if she could get this little bit of money, how she could make it into more. So in our time, it'd be like, okay, if I could get together uh, 50 bucks to buy the ingredients, I know how I could make $300. That sort of math of the street vendor, and I know a lot of people were, were working on that right now, um, but how we start a business that and, and have, a, have an ecosystem where people could be in this food business, I don't know, I, maybe I should have thrown out a surprise, but one idea I've had for some time is how can, how can I start using that math of the street vendor to make money? Um, and one idea I have is to uh, deliver uh, vegan kits. Um, so a lot of people, the meat prices will probably be going up. People don't know how to cook vegan. Can I go to the farms, pick up some lentils? I did buy 30 pounds of lentils directly from the farm recently. It, it's working wonderful. There's a lot of blogs on it. I've been doing my recipes on foodfreedomradio.com if you want to check out what I did with these. But could I drop off um, grains and legumes brand, and with the other ingredients that people would have to make meals um, and so what would be involved if I wanted to start a business like that, Jason? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to, love to spend a little time talking about that. Uh, it's a big part of what I do on a daily basis in terms of speaking with, uh, with people interested in those same types of topics. Uh, first and foremost, what I will say is don't be afraid to find somebody to help. You're not in it alone. There are a number of support organizations, whether it's AURI, whether it's I believe you've had a Lauren Pradhan from Grow North on, mm-hmm. um, a number of other organizations that are here to help. And you can never forget the value that the state of Minnesota places on providing support. But in terms of where you might start, uh, there's really two ways that you can, you can think about starting. Um, the first is, how are you going to think about getting to market? Uh, there are two different places that you can go. One is called Cottage Foods Law. Uh, and Cottage Foods Law is, is really the initial focus is, is really about 
providing a low hurdle to entry, but with a focus on food safety. And I can't emphasize that enough, that the entire food system from the um, entry-level person going into the farmer's market all the way up to the big Fortune 500 food companies, the entire food system is built with a focus on food safety. And that's the primary reason for the vast majority of the regulations that you'll see. So if I want to get a cottage food law, it costs me only 50 bucks and I can do it online, right? <laughs> uh, that, that's right. That's right. There are some uh, – it's, it's a low hurdle to entry. The, the food itself must be on what they call the non-potentially hazardous foods list. And uh, it, it's, it's a pretty extensive list, but it does restrict uh, dairy products. It restricts meat products and among others. But it's really meant to limit the need to, ha- to have an inspection by the Minnesota Department of Agriculture in, in where you're going. Um, and you can, you can make the product directly from a home kitchen, so you're not necessarily tied to having to go into a licensed commercial kitchen and make that, that investment. But, but there are some cons associated with it. You know, you, only, you can only have a maximum revenue stream of about 18,000 users' hands. So it has to leave the maker's hands and go directly to the end user's hands. So it has to leave the maker's hands and go directly to the end user's hands. So it can't be bought and sold over the Internet right now? Well, you can, you can complete the transaction over the Internet, but the, the food product must pass directly from you as the maker to the end user. So there can't be any middlemen. Shipping is not allowed. Though I will say the Minnesota Farmers Market Association is working hard to see if some of those initial restrictions that were put in with the original cottage foods law may be lifted uh, in an effort to enable more business opportunities. For small makers. Right, because the larger issue with this is how do we connect farms to people? And there's so much wonderful stuff going on right now. Um, I've heard that more people than ever are doing the community-supported agriculture. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. They were on our show last week. Um, go down to the Farmer's Market. is is open. It's one way. They want you to go in and go out fast. Um, and uh, also the co-op movement here has been fantastic. Um, they, they support the local independent businesses, the sewer makers. So, um, so th- this, this importance of having an ecosystem, that, that's, that's like step one, right? That, that when you have a strong ecosystem that supports other companies, what does that mean? Well, what that means to me and what that means to uh, the members of the ecosystem is being able to provide support and being able to, what I like to say is, is I like to say that uh, my role is in some regards um, to help food makers get out of their own way when it comes to finding in, out information that they may not have known about. Um, I have so much experience in, in bringing food products to market. My ability to share that is, is what really sets the state of Minnesota apart. And having an ecosystem means that it's not just um, organizations like AURI being able to provide technical support, but other organizations that will connect you with um, other resources that you might need. Uh, one of the great partners in our ecosystem is a, an accounting firm called Clifton Larson Allen, uh, a gentleman by the name of Brendan Curvers. He's is actively involved in all of the work that we do within the ecosystem, and they've created a practice for small food businesses that focuses on ensuring that your financial books are set up right the first time. 
as opposed to trying to stumble through it. And as your business grows, trying to devote all of your time focused on how do I just get my books right so I know how much I'm making on this product. So I know it's, it's a big topic and we only have two minutes left. Um, so what do you think if somebody does want to think about this might be a good time to start a, a food uh, business and, you know, under the cottage food laws, a $50 license, you can make up to 18000 How do people get information about that? And then secondly, if they want to scale up and do something uh, that's, that's a little bit larger than that, um, how can they take their idea to the marketplace? Absolutely. If you're interested in learning more about the the cottage foods law, the first place I would direct you to is the Minnesota Farmers Market Association website. They do some great work just describing it. And if you're interested in connecting directly with somebody who can help kind of guide you down that path initially, uh, do not hesitate to reach out to AURI. A big part of my role is, is just starting with Uh, individuals who are looking to grow and don't really know where to go next. And that's built into our model. Okay. And so um, last minute, uh, what do you see for the future of the Minnesota food system? Uh, What I'm I'm seeing is uh, even more connectedness as as an opportunity for um, more resilient food supply chains. Uh, I see the local foods movement continuing to get bigger and bigger, particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, as individuals start to lose a little bit of faith in uh, supply chains and whether or not their products can be um, sourced from across the country, being able to source them independently from a local business that supports the community is going to be something that I see coming in the in the near future, even more so than what we're seeing today. Ah, yes, yes, more, more local food, more gardens. Um, so thank you so much, Jason Robinson with AURI. That website is auri.org. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to uh, Katie Stearns, um, the uh, You Betcha Box, and how they're um, rallying to feed uh, the front lines. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is um, Katie Stearns, and she's with You Betcha, YouBetchaBox.com. Hi, Katie. Hi, Laura. How are you? You know, I am, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Also, yes. It's just crazy times, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard to even try to, um, try to be present to it all, but you've done something really super cool. You've taken a sad song and make it better. Um, so tell us all about <laughs> Feeding the Front Lines. Thank you so much. Well, you know, when this whole thing um, started unfolding, you know, um, of course, you know, I'm worried about what's happening everywhere and what's going to happen to society and blah, 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 my business. And, you know, um, I had just started to really break out into getting, you know, developing my company into like lots of special event sales and hospitality sales through hotels and things like that. And that just completely, as you can imagine, completely evaporated. Um, but on the other hand, you know, as an entrepreneur, I was kind of finding new ideas and opportunities. And I thought I'm positioned well for e-commerce already. We're doing direct-to-consumer shipments. People need food. They want food. They are, there's care packages. Um, people want to send and connect with family and friends that they can't visit. So there's opportunity in that. But, again, 
thinking holistically about what's going on. How can I continue to do good in the community and help specifically for this uh, crisis that we're all facing? What can I, what can we bring as you bet your box? We're kind of uniquely positioned because, you know, we can help these small businesses that we work with as well, potentially. So I thought, how can I help them stay afloat through this? Because, you know, these small food makers do not have, even though grocery is kind of booming everywhere, um, they don't necessarily have good shelf presence and go in, in retail grocery environments. And they certainly do not have a good e-commerce direct-to-consumer presence. So I thought, how can I help all these small artisan food makers stay afloat through this? Um, and that, and I, and I was thinking a lot about that and maybe, you know, how to combine those efforts with the frontline effort and supporting the people who are, oh my gosh, you know, putting themselves and, uh, at risk every single day as they go into these hospital settings and elsewhere, um, and experience, you know, exposure, you know, potential. Um, so, um, as I was starting to develop concepts around that, I was also at the same time approached by a group that was working directly with Bethesda, where the COVID unit is, uh, the first COVID unit was set up, Bethesda Hospital. And they asked me if I could help them source very specific product that would be appropriate for the workers in that setting. And um, so the situation in these hospitals and nursing homes and long-term care facilities is that um, the people working in that environment really don't have access to, um, they can't go to the cafes, to the cafeterias and eat, you know, um, they are often in very hectic situations where they just don't have a break. And so sitting down for a community meal or something just is not feasible. Um, so they really were looking for some grab and grow, grab and go nutrient dense snacks that were not junk food, but were healthy um, individually packaged so they can't share from a common bag, for example, given the situation, individually packaged shelf stable. And I said, yes, absolutely. And I have, you know, I think I've mentioned this um, in my interviews on here before, but, you know, you betcha back those relationships with over 100 small makers in Minnesota. And so I put the call out even more broadly to bring in as many people who have that kind of a product that would fit the bill. And we put together a campaign to raise money um, and help fund um, these grab-and-go snack You Betcha boxes. It's Feed the Frontline You Betcha boxes, and they are specifically geared towards supporting frontline workers with nutrient-dense, healthy snacks. So the people who are participating in this, the makers who are participating in this, are also earning revenue from it. They are being paid for their product. They're, I'm not asking them to donate product. They can't afford to donate product. They need to be paid for it. So they're getting wholesale pricing for their products in the same way they would normally. And then they um, are earning revenue from this. So every single, I love this because it's like, you know, we try to do as much good as we can with You Betcha Box with every box we sell. We try to support the environment by using environmental packaging. We try. We work with a nonprofit that serves disabled Minnesotans, and they receive employment through You Betcha Box. We um, really are trying to help tell the stories of small makers who have a hard time getting their message out and establishing their brand and their brand identity. Um, so this is another way that we're extending that community goodwill and supporting our community because every time one of these boxes go out, not only is it supporting the amazing 
frontline heroes that are out there doing this incredible work, but it is also supporting these awesome small businesses within Minnesota and keeping them afloat through this as they make adjustments and try to pivot and create new opportunities for themselves. So So, what kind of response did you get? um, Wonderful. Oh, my goodness. So we were really fortunate to um, create relationships with several foundations that are also working on this. And so through those relationships, we were able to support, um, gosh, I think we've provided over 7,000 or 8,000 snacks to frontline workers in Minnesota. Uh, We had a wonderful opportunity through uh, the Veterans Administration in Minneapolis, the hospital there. Um, The Paralyzed Veterans of America, the Minnesota chapter, um, they uh, wanted to give a donation to provide um, a recognition and meals or something to the staff there, to all of the staff there. There's over 4,000 people who work there. And they... Um, ended up using You Betcha Box and all the treats. So we delivered over 6,000 snacks in one big delivery to the um, VA two weeks ago. And every worker there was able to participate in that. Oh, so this feels was, so great. You know, Kitty, we got about a minute left, and I want to make sure. sure people understand. So, like, if you want, especially, um, my heart really goes out to the people working in uh, senior homes. Um, there's just So it's just showing up to the senior home, the hospital, with some healthy snacks. Here's, some, here's something to say thank you. That, that's what you're doing. Yes. Right. And, so and you we can, can you support can you. Yeah, thank you. So you can come to uh, com, and we have a donation tab there where you can um, make donations directly, and your um, donations there will go directly to um, creating these boxes that go out to the frontline people across hospitals and um, first responders, the University of Minnesota, um, where they're doing incredible research as well and working around the clock, um, and uh, long-term care facilities. So that's one way to do it. Um, also, we have just in general, purchasing your betcha boxes always is helpful to support small businesses in Minnesota. And we've created two provisions type boxes that are more like care packages. They're not geared as luxury gift items. They're geared as practical things that we can use in our homes right now and share with others um, to create delicious meals using Minnesota products or a pantry basics pack I have up there. So there's lots of ways um, just in being conscientious in our purchasing um, to support our local businesses and small makers. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Katie Stearns, with You Bitcha Box. Um, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.